0: Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher David McNaughton.
1: Peter Strawson wrote a book, and he gets onto Kant's views about religion, and he says something like, it is with extreme reluctance as a 20th century philosopher encroaches uh, on matters of religion, as if he were sort of picking up a turd, really. And, you know, by the end of the century, there's uh, this huge output of People writing away as if the middle ages
0: never ceased. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. David McNaughton is a professor of philosophy at Florida State University. He has published a couple dozen professional articles, mostly on ethics and philosophy of religion. David, welcome to the show.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: David, before we get into philosophy, would you share with us your own faith journey?
1: My parents were both agnostics, but they took Christianity very seriously. Hmm. Uh, So they sent me to a local Sunday school, so that I would, as it were, find out what it was all about, having told me that if I got bored or didn't like it, I could stop. So I guess I went for two or three years, and then uh, when I was 11 or 12, I decided that I'd had enough, so I stopped going. And then, as so often happens, when you're a teenager, in my early teens, I started, you know, thinking seriously about these matters and thought it's the most important question to know whether there was a God. And so uh, I started praying every evening, you know, waiting for some sort of reply. And I guess after about six months, I felt there was some kind of a response, nothing tremendously, you know, earth-shattering. So I went along to my local Methodist church, which was the one that I had been to the Sunday school at. And I became a pretty devout Christian for about 10 years, from the age of 14 to the age of 24. And I might as well say now that the biggest influence, I think, on my Christianity was the works of C.S. Lewis. Uh-huh. I'd been introduced to the lyrics because my parents bought me the Narnia books as they came out.
0: Wow. So,
1: you know, this is a, you know it's still like Harry Potter, but Yeah, <laughs> very exciting to get the new one. <laughs> so when I was at college, I read things like Near Christianity and the Screwtape Letters and so on. And then in my mid-20s, I just started drifting away. And it wasn't as if anything not Dramatic happened, it was just, You know, I didn't go to church for a while, and then I was reminded later of Jesus' parable about the man who goes out to save the wheat, you know, and the weeds come up and chokes the wheat after it started growing, and these are kind of worldly cares. When you're in your mid-twenties, there are a lot of things going on, you're trying to get a house, you get married, you know, it's very easy just to kind of think that these things are more important. Um, But then, because I was a philosopher, I came to have philosophical doubts. And in particular, I read Hume, and Hume, of course, has a a very well-worked-out attack on Christianity. For many years, I took philosophy of religion with Richard Swinburne, who was the head of my department. And Richard Swinburne, I read a lot of Swinburne, and he persuaded me that the intellectual case for Christianity was much stronger than I had previously thought. I mean, I've always been sympathetic to a religious worldview. Um, and I noticed that whenever people attacked Christianity, I was immediately defending it, saying, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember thinking for a long time, this is very like C.S. Lewis, who, you know, on his spiritual journey, said that uh, he would read his favorite poets were all Christians, but he just thought, well, well that's just a kind of coincidence. <laughs> um, Shame about them being Christians, really, but they're very good parents. (laughs) So I would sort of say, no, 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 this is is a sensible view. I just don't hold it. And then philosophically, the most important thing that happened to me next was reading William James' A Will to Believe. And I think one of the things that had been holding me back was the thought that philosophically respectable people only believe things when they've got really very strong evidence for believing them. And James points out that if you do that, you're going to miss out on an enormous amount in life, For example, you're not going to get married because how can you possibly know this marriage is going to work out, right? But if you're prepared, as it were, to take the risk, then you might find something satisfying in marriage. But of course, if you refuse to commit yourself on the ground, you don't really know how things are going to be. You're never going to have the chance of having a satisfactory relationship. And similarly, James argues with God, namely, if you're not prepared, as it were, to do some reaching out, then you're very likely to, you know, if there is a God, you're going to miss out. Of course, James stresses, and I thought this was right, this is all a risk, because you might be wrong. But then he says, well, what's wrong with taking a risk if the reward might be very great in terms of what it did for your life. So I think in a way I sort of started the James approach. And, you know, I went back to praying and thinking about these things. But I didn't really do anything about it until my wife became terminally ill. And at that point I did a great deal of praying, as I think many people do. And I found that well, I was given enormous strength to do all kinds of things. I really thought I probably couldn't do. So after she died, I went on a short vacation in Florida and I walked along a beach. And I felt God was saying to me, Well, you know, I came through for you and now it's payback time. (laughs) So I joined my local Episcopalian church and sort of took up my religious life where I'd left it 30 something years before.
0: Now, I, something confused me. I don't, I don't want this to come off harsh, but your wife died and you felt God was saying that he had come through for you?
1: Well, in the sense that I had asked for help in facing this difficulty. Because, you know, apart from dying yourself, having a loved one die is probably a time when you feel most alone even though other people are you know, very helpful and still it's something you have to cope with every minute of the day. And so this seemed to me a time when I was given enormous strength to face up to various difficulties. And so I was grateful. It's it's like being grateful to a friend who helped you through a difficult patch.
0: Mm, Okay. Well, that's a very interesting faith journey. Now, about God and ethics... Mm -hmm. Most religious believers have thought that God and ethics aren't really even two separate things. They usually have thought that ethics somehow comes from God or is identical with God. What are some of the theories of morality that believers have proposed?
1: Of course, there are a considerable number. I'll just mention a very few. The one that I think most people are familiar with is known by philosophers as divine command theory, and this is the view that what makes actions right or wrong is simply they're being commanded or forbidden by God. And that view, in a way, doesn't leave much of a role for thinking about ethics or reasoning about ethics. You simply have to consult, as it were, the manual, which is. Christian, because the Bible, where the rules are laid down. So it's a bit like someone gives you a book and says, Here are the rules of the house, and we expect you to abide by them. And if you ask questions, they just say, Well, these are the rules. <laughs> many people don't find this very satisfactory. In fact, many Christians don't really find it very satisfactory. I think. Partly this goes back to a deep division within Christianity between those who think that God gave you reason for a purpose. One of his purposes was so that you could think clearly about your moral obligations and your place in the world. And the other strand that thinks that we're so depraved and corrupt by sin that our reason is completely depraved and corrupt, and so it's completely useless. And so you have to... You know, rely entirely on God for the answers, because there's no point in thinking for yourself. But many Christians, like Thomas Aquinas, for example, thought that we could work out the basic rules of morality for ourselves. But they weren't, you know, just rules written down in a book, but rules that made sense, you could see, if it were, why God had decided that those were the appropriate rules. Sometimes people put the view this way, People who believe in the divine command theory think that morality just depends on God's will, just on his choice and on the fact that he's totally powerful and so can do whatever he likes. And people on the other side tend to think that what is good, as it were, finds its source in God, but it depends on his whole nature, including the fact that he is a a good and rational being as well as being a powerful being who can punish.
0: Now, is there a different name for that second theory, wherein morality is grounded in God's nature?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, there may be, but if so, I don't know what it is. And it comes in various different forms. But I think the essential thought is that nothing could exist, and certainly nothing good could exist if it weren't for God, since God is, on the Christian view, the sustainer and upholder of everything in the universe. But we're not to think, as it were, that he just does whatever he chooses on a whim. Since he's a rational being, he creates the world for good reasons, and he does things for good reasons, and he tells us to do things for good reasons, and so on. And that we can learn what these reasons are. So, uh, rules about you know, not stealing and not bearing false witness and so on look like the sort of rules that, any sort of sensible being would impose on a human race.
0: Hmm. Now, I think relevant to both of those theories is a dilemma raised by Plato a few centuries before Jesus was born. Would you explain for us what is the Euthyphro Dilemma?
1: Yes. As you say, it comes in a dialogue of Plato's by that name. And it's roughly about the direction of explanation. Let me say what that means. Many Christians would think that what God commands and what actions are right coincide. So we can't, for example, imagine God ever commanding something that's wrong, nor can we imagine that there are right things that we should do, but God doesn't command us to do them, either explicitly or implicitly. So perhaps all Christians can accept that whatever God commands is right and whatever God forbids is wrong. But now the question about the order of explanation is are, for example, obligatory acts right because God has commanded them or does he command them because they're right? And typically um, people who take the divine command theory, think that actions are right because God commands them. That's the explanation of their being right. Right. That's what it is for them to be right. And then people who reject divine command theory take the other horn of the dilemma and think that God commands certain things because he sees them to be right. So... The next question, of course, is why is this a dilemma? Now, a dilemma typically a case where you've got two options and you don't want to take either of them. <laughs> right? You, you know, you'd like right. a third option, but you haven't got it. So,
0: <laughs>
1: suppose you take the divine command theory. The standard objection, which has been around for centuries, is, well, if it just depends on God's will, presumably he could command anything he wanted to. So I suppose he demanded uh, that we all torture babies for fun. Then torturing babies for fun would be the right thing to do. And that seems uh, completely outrageous and unacceptable. And I only really know of one philosopher who has explicitly bitten the bullet and said, okay, I accept this consequence. And that apparently was William of Ockham. He said, okay, well, if God commanded cruelty, cruelty would be right. (laughs) Nearly everybody else who accepts the divine command theory has tried to soften it in some way. So a recent example is Robert Adams, who's written a series of articles on divine command theory. He accepts the theory, but then says, well, of course, in the background is his assumption that God has a certain character in particular, that God is a loving God who cares for his creatures and so on. So Adam thinks that if he were to discover that God had commanded cruelty for its own sake, then he would simply say, well, I don't know what to say now because there are two things, you know, I believe. One is, what is right? is right because God commands it. And the other is, God is a loving God. And now these two have you know, come apart. But the, the problem with Adam's view is this. Why are people driven to the divine command? theory? Why don't they think that God told us to do certain things? Because he sees that they're right, and he's a moral being, so he cares about what is right. Well, a lot of people think that God is sovereign over everything. That is, you know, he determines everything. Nothing happens except by his will. But now if we say, well, look, he couldn't command cruelty for its own sake because it's wrong, then there would be moral truths that are independent of God's will. Um, And people don't like things that are independent of God's will if they're Christians. So that's why it's a dilemma. If you go for the divine command theory, you tend to end up saying that God's will looks arbitrary. If you reject that and go for the other view where morality is independent of God, then it looks as if or at least independent of his will. It looks as if there might be something that didn't depend on God for its truth. And people who reject the divine command theory can say various things, but one obvious thing they can say is, yes, there are things that are independent of God's will. There are things like the laws of logic and mathematics. God can't make Pythagoras' theorem false. That's not a limitation on his power. So, people who reject divine command theory but want to be serious, typically think there are a necessary truth and, but they're a necessary moral truth, but they don't think this is a limitation on God because, after all, God can't change necessary truths. Again, I only know one philosopher, he's bits of a bullet. And that was Descartes, who apparently said, if God made, you know, God ordained that 2 plus 2 equals 5, then 2 plus 2 would equal 5. But not many people have followed
0: him in that. Yeah, that's just confused, I think. So in Adam's view in particular, he's one who posits brute moral facts in addition to facts about morality that are derivative of God. For example, he says, the better the character of the commander, the more reason there is to obey his or her commands. And that's a fact about morality that's independent of God's nature or God's commands. Well,
1: it's certainly a fact about value of independence. So Adam's thought is, as it were, we can all recognize that someone who was loving and cared for his creatures would be good, and someone who was cruel and tortured his creatures would be bad. But then, um, you know, we want to say, well, does that fact depend on God's will or not? If that fact depends on God's will, then presumably God could announce that from now on, uh, a good being would be one who tortured people. Right. But if you think goodness, what goodness is, is independent of God's will, then you've got something in your picture that's independent of God's will. There may be two different justifications for divine command theory. One is this metaphysical worry that we mustn't have anything independent of God's will. I think what's driving Adam is simply the thought that though goodness and badness are independent of God's will, nevertheless, we need someone, as it were, to make decisions about ethical cases. So, one of Adam's um, examples is about sexual relations. Right? So, you might think there are various different reasonably satisfactory ways we could have arranged our social life, say so the children were brought up adequately and had protection and were cared for and loved, and so on. And then the word God gets to decide which of these is the best way for us all to go. Um, but that picture seems to be nothing really to do with divine command theory, but more like the picture of the good parent who lays down some rules for children so that they won't get confused or lost. And I think all Christians can agree that God could lay down rules provided they were morally acceptable rules, that uh, made a difference. So the analogy here is you know, parents and children. So you probably, when you're a child, you probably ought to learn to clean your room. Well, you're never going to do this um, unless told. And usually your parents tell you, you know, clean your room today. <laughs> now, you know, you could have cleaned your room tomorrow, and that would have probably been okay. But now, because someone in authority has told you to clean your room today, uh, that seems to make a difference to whether you ought to do it today or tomorrow. Similarly, you might think if God has told you that uh, you should do something on a particular day of the week. Uh, there's nothing special about that day of the week, other than the fact that God has told you that's a special day. But that seems to make sense, because there's nothing immoral, as it, were, about having a special day.
0: Mm. Now, I would think that a lot of Christians would have difficulty with a view like Adam's, where there are facts about value and morality that aren't grounded in God's will Mm -hmm. or character. Mm -hmm. Another way to try to avoid the euthyphro dilemma is this idea of saying that, well, morality is not grounded in God's arbitrary commands, but grounded in God's nature which is merely expressed in his commands. But I'm not clear on how this avoids the problem, for it would still be the case that whatever it was God's nature to prefer would be good by definition. So if it was God's nature to prefer genocide and rape, then it would be morally right to commit genocide and rape and for God to command such. Uh, So aren't we still back at square one with the Euthyphro Dilemma if we say that morality is grounded in God's nature?
1: We certainly would
0: be if God's
1: nature were thought of as something entirely arbitrary. He just happens to have a particular nature in the way that, uh, say, my cat has a particular nature. Um, I might have been different. Uh, but because the traditional theological view has been that all God's properties belong to him necessarily and essentially, so that he's essentially and necessarily good and so on. Well, I sympathize with the main thrust of your objection because it does seem to me that we can recognize independently of God's nature what a good God would look like. It isn't as it were that we have to discover God's nature first and then we learn what goodness is. Rather, we already have some idea about what goodness is, perhaps not a complete idea. um, And in a sense, we We use our judgment to decide whether the God that someone is telling us about is a good God. So I am inclined to think that there are necessary moral and evaluative facts that are independent of any of God's will, but in a sense independent of his nature, in that he has that nature because these things are good, rather than these things being good because he has this nature.
0: Now, another concern for divine command theories of morality, one that was raised by many people, but, for example, Christian philosopher Gottfried Leibniz, was that if we ground morality and goodness in God's will or his nature, then this kind of evacuates a lot of our praise terms for God. For example, to call God good would just mean that he accords with his own nature, which is you know, not a very impressive accomplishment. Uh is this right. a concern for many theists?
1: I think it ought to be for people who believe in the divine command theory. Um, and indeed, it's an objection that's often pressed against this view because, after all, it's not just a theory about rightness, it's also a theory about goodness. So if you say, on on a sort of divine command approach, then um, what is good is just whatever God approves of. So if you say... Um, to say that God is good is no more than to say he has a nature that he approves of. Yeah. Whereas if you think there are standards of goodness that don't, as it were, depend on arbitrary choice, then as I say, you would think that God is good because as an all powerful, all knowing being, he knows, you know, he already knows as well what is for the best. Um, and so decide. But again, the analogy here might be mathematics, presumably, uh, for all those many uh, unsolved mathematical problems, like, um, until recently, Fermat's Last Theorem. Now, you know, someone produced something I said was a proof of Fermat's Last Theorem, um, and either it is a good proof or it not and it's so long and complicated that nobody really knows. But presumably, God would know. But he doesn't know just by as he would choose you can immediately see all the steps in the argument and see whether they all might, or they're all valid
0: or
1: not. Mm. And I think the same might be like said about it.
0: Well, another thing that confuses me about divine command theory is that it's often put forward as a form of objective morality, mm-hmm. but I think that traditionally it's been fit under the category of subjectivism uh, in such that you know subjectivist theories of morality hold that moral statements are made true or false by the attitudes or conventions of persons and so individual subjectivism would say that something is good or bad if a particular person thinks that they're good or bad Uh, cultural subjectivism would say that something is morally right or wrong depending on whether or not it's approved by a particular society ideal observer theory would say that we can hypothesize this ideal observer who can see everything clearly and is perfectly rational and what's good or bad is dependent on what that hypothetical entity uh, would think is right or wrong. And then it seems like divine command theorists think that that ideal observer does exist and his name is God. And so whatever is good or bad is dependent on the attitudes or nature or commands of this particular person. God. So you, why would that be put forward as an objective theory of morality?
1: That's a good question. But you know, the word objective and subjective are probably the most overused terms in philosophy, and the philosophers are always pointing out, need very careful definitions. Yeah. So I think one thing that people want, as it were, from their moral code is the thoughts that It's objective in the sense that it's truth or falsity doesn't depend on what we humans, as it were, decide or want or happen to feel or would feel if we did various things and so on. And in that sense, of course, having a sort of divine commander who tells you what all the answers are, uh, and that's going to be true for everybody, that gives you that kind of objectivity, the kind of objectivity where there's no arguing about this, there is an answer, and the answer is given as it were in the divine army manual but there's another as you rightly point out there's another contrast that people often make, which again is a sort of euphyto point about what explains it. namely uh, uh, is this action right because you know a perfectly informed sympathetic being would approve of it or would a perfectly informed, sympathetic person approve of it because it's right. And on my conception of God, then because God is fully rational and sees all the facts and understands everything, then he sees which acts are, are right, which ones are wrong, which ones are uh, you know are morally indifferent. And so it it doesn't depend on um his his attitude rather his attitude is determined by the moral facts, so I want to agree with you that one of the objections to divine command theory would be that it seems to make uh morality dependent on somebody's uh choices uh even if that person is perfect in every way. And that would be like mathematics, again. I mean, it would be very odd if the truth of Pythagoras' theorem depended on God's believing it, rather than God's believing it because he sees that things have to be this way.
0: Now, you mentioned that one definition for objective would be to say that, well, morality is objective if it's grounded in a standard that transcends human thought. Uh, But that would also be the case if for example we found out that we were in some kind of universe simulation by a math student in a higher dimension. (laughs) We could say, well morality is grounded in what this math student thinks is right in our universe and that would seem very much to be a subjective moral theory in the first sense that I intended and yet it would be objective in the sense of having to transcend the ideas of Homo sapiens?
1: Yes. Well, I said that I think one consideration that might drive people to divine command theory is this feeling that, uh, as it were, if there isn't a standard that transcends humans, then uh, everything is up to us, so we can do what we like, and so on. But in fact, as you point out with your little example, um, the difficulty with this theory is that I think all the time we're smuggling back into the theory the thought that actual God, as it were, gives you these be rules because he sees they're the best rules, whereas you know the mad experimenter or whatever might like just pick a set of rules, <laughs> you know, any old set of rules. Yeah. But I don't think the divine command theorist is really entitled to that thought, like that because. The divine command theory simply bases morality on the fact that God has power and that He chooses things a certain, be a certain way. And the philosopher Thomas Hobbes says, look, people ask why should we obey God? And some people think it's because we should be grateful to Him and because He's created. Some people think that we should obey God because He's good but the real reason is that he has irresistible power. So <laughs> that seems to me a most unattractive moral theory. And I think in the end, divine command theories are in danger of going down that road and then fights very hard trying to avoid it, but I'm not sure in the end they can avoid it. After all, what's the difference between God, God's command and the commands of, you know, someone who's, I don't know, created the matrix and put it in it. Yeah. Well, it looks like power is the only answer because if there's no independent standards, uh, independent of the person who made the system, then they get to make the rules. It's a bit like, you know, you write a novel and then you get to make the rules for people in the novel. And you decide, you know, if they're going to live in a fantasy world or a real world and you decide how they're going to behave, um, the whole thing is just up to you and there are no constraints.
0: Well, you mentioned a moment ago that one primary motivation for divine command theory is that if there isn't an kind of omnipotent, uh, omnipresent, all-knowing God who defines morality for us, then morality is just up to us and everything is permitted, and that would be terribly because then some People are going to think that rape is okay. And, you know, what if the yeah. Nazis had won World War II? We'd all think that uh, racism yeah. is okay. Um, but of course, moral philosophers have been coming up with secular moral theories that define morality in a standard outside of human preferences in lots of different ways for several centuries. So, why would people be worried that unless there's a cosmic dictator, there can't be? morality beyond our own subjective preferences?
1: In some ways, I find that a difficult question to answer because I suppose it's a kind of partly a psychological question, you know, what people are frightened of. It seems to me that in many cases, people are driven to various positions because they're scared about the alternatives and sometimes they're not very clear about what the alternatives really are. However, there has been an enormous loss of faith amongst secular moral philosophers about whether there really is some kind of independent standard of how we ought to behave. So there's been a growth of theories that take their origin from people like David Hume. Hume's theory, which was fairly common at the time that he wrote, also widely accepted now, is a view in which really all that we can say is that we are the sorts of creatures who typically tend to approve of certain kinds of action and tend to disapprove of other kinds. And we can perhaps offer an evolutionary explanation of why we all think like that. And so we impose a moral system on everybody because it's for the general benefit and because we are sort of driven by our evolutionary origins to want to do that. But nevertheless, if someone were to ask really awkward questions, like, well, I can see it's for the general good, but why should I obey these rules? There really isn't, on this view, a very satisfactory answer. Right at the end of Hume's little book, An Inquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals, he has this example about a sensible knave and the sensible knave at the question, well, why shouldn't I be unjust if I can get away with it? And Hume says, well, sort of looked at it in a rather limited way, uh, this guy has a plate. But still, you know, how would he sleep at night? Uh, you know, how could he have an assessment of his character that he could live with if he behaved this way? Well, the obvious answer to that seems to be, well, by not caring about being unjust, of course. Well, plenty of unjust people sleep perfectly well at night. And so in the end, human just has to say, well, that's just the way we're made. Most of us aren't like this. On the other side, there are people like me who think there are independent moral norms. But the theories that support this view have come under severe attack. Mm-hmm. The two main ones that are around at the moment are some form of Kantian theory, and part of the difficulty with Kantian theory is that they're extraordinarily difficult and complicated to understand, and what used to be known as rational intuitionism, which is a view that held by, for example, by David Ross, and that's the view that for a certain sort of fundamental moral and evaluative truths that we know simply by thinking about them. And of course, we could be wrong about these, but all you can do if you think you might be wrong is to go back and think again. But rational intuitionists, and I am a rational intuitionist, are few and far between because this is thought to conflict to the sort of scientific world view. Mm -hmm. So for a I'm very unsympathetic to his argument, so I'm probably going to parody it. But the argument seems to be like this. Science has been enormously success at discovering facts about all sorts of things. Science doesn't tell us anything about values or about morality. Indeed, it's hard to see how it could, because they're not the kinds of things that can be tested in the laboratory. So, there probably aren't any facts about values or morality. The reason why I'm very unsympathetic to this argument is that it presupposes that science will tell us about everything, and I don't see any reason to believe that. Of course, science will tell us about all those things that are open to scientific investigation. they A bit of like a historian who a historical study has been remarkably successful in telling us all about history and what happened in the past, so... The only facts are historical facts. But <laughs> also, you know, but there are other ways of discovering things. Now, it seems to me there are ways of discovering things. But not only does science not discover these things, but scientists have to use them. So there's something called scientific method, which, you know, you tend to get taught in high school about forming theories, making observations, you know, either rejecting theory or modifying it in the light of the observation. And you're told this is the rational way to do science. Well, does science tell you that? No, because that's the sort of rational foundation of how science ought to be conducted. So I think all human enterprises presuppose that there are, you know, right and wrong and good, better and worse ways of proceeding. And if you say, how do we know these things? Well, rather unexciting answer is think about them as clearly as you can.
0: Are there other Abrahamic believers who accept a theory that is different than divine command theory, like you do? For example, rational intuitionism or Kantian ethics or consequentialism or contractarianism, or are pretty much all, you know, Western Jews, Muslims, Christians going to accept just a divine command theory of ethics?
1: Well, I haven't done a head count, but I mean, there are certainly plenty of people who are prominent in the defense of Christianity who reject divine command theory. Um, One of these is Richard Swinburne, who someone called the Thomas Aquinas of the 20th century, which is pretty high praise. And Swinburne takes a view rather similar to mine, namely that he thinks that Fundamental moral truths are necessary truths, and uh, not even God can change the necessary truths. But that leaves a lot, if work were, to be filled in. So God can't uh, command you to do anything that's fundamentally morally wrong. But given there are a lot of things that uh, are wrong, but you still have a choice, he could, if he saw fit, command you to do one thing rather than another. Uh, so, on richard 's view god 's commands make a difference, but they make a difference in the area of things that aren 't already forbidden as being absolutely morally wrong and One example of this would just be the sort of the individual call right because it 's a common Christian view that God can call you to a particular mission mm-hmm. right Well, in that case, God seems to command you to do this job rather than somebody else. Standard text here is Moses in the Burning Bush, where Moses says, Well, you know, I can't, I'm not a good speaker, and they won't believe me anyway. And God says, Well, you're the guy, and you're going to do it. Now, it looks as if now Moses has an obligation, at least, to go and try, right? because he's just been told by God to do it. Uh, suppose that uh, liberating the Jews is a morally acceptable and perhaps a good thing. Um, is there a particular reason why Moses should do it rather than somebody else. Well, yes, because God's asked him to do it. So that's roughly how Richard Swinburne, as he were, gets God into the picture while still thinking that there are necessary moral standards independent of God's will. And that's a view that I would have thought was reasonably common amongst a large number of philosophers of religion. Uh, philosophy of religion, of course, has sort of taken off when I first started doing philosophy. I, philosophy of religion was really pretty awful. And I remember reading a book by Peter Strawson. Peter Strawson wrote a book, and he gets onto Kant's views about religion, and he says something like, it is with extreme reluctance as a 20th century philosopher encroaches uh, on matters of religion, as if he were sort of picking up a turd, really. Uh, And, you know, by the end of the century, there's this huge outburst of people writing away as if the Middle Ages had never ceased. Um, And people are doing philosophical theology all over the place, and there's a Society of Christian Philosophers. The very idea that there might have been a Society of Christian Philosophers in the 1960s would have been treated with complete amazement. Since people just assume that, you know, if you wanted to be a Christian, you'd better not look at
0: philosophy. Yeah, that's been quite a change. Going back to divine command theory,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: let's suppose in a hypothetical made-up case that the God of the Bible decided to destroy most living things on the planet because a few hundred or thousand Homo sapiens weren't worshipping and obeying him properly and so he wiped out all these innocent creatures because of that. Now, would a divine command theorist be committed to saying that that was a morally good thing for God to do?
1: I certainly think a divine command theorist would be committed to that if, of course, he thought that such a thing had been commanded. And you very carefully said a hypothetical test, because there is such a thing, namely narrow on the ark. Well... One of the problems in religion, as in politics, is we have these two labels, conservative and liberal, which are then thrown about largely as insults, as far as I can see. (laughs) And actually, you know, there are a number of complex positions. The other label that I often used is evangelical, and I don't like labeling one side evangelical, because this implies that the other side aren't interested in evangelizing, that is, you know, bringing the news of Jesus Christ to people who haven't received it, um, which would be very odd. I mean, all Christians are called to do that. So one division is between what we might call literalists and people who don't think that every word in the Bible is, you know, to be taken as literally true. So, I was looking this morning at um, the faith statement of Wheaton College, right, who say, amongst sort other of things, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are verbally inspired by God and inerrant in the original writing, so that they are fully trustworthy and a supreme and final authority in all they say. Okay, it's pretty clear. And then it goes on to say things like, we believe that God directly created Adam and Eve, historical parents of the entire human race, blah, blah. Straight down the line, everything in the Bible is to be read as a literal historical account.
0: Mm.
1: Now, why I was interested in this is because, I think I mentioned that one of my heroes was C.S. Lewis. One of his friends, Clyde Tilby, sent him the Wheaton College statement and asked for Lewis's opinion about it. And the reply is interesting because Lewis is someone of whom sort of conservatives and evangelicals tend to be very fond. And yet Lewis clearly doesn't believe that we should take the, the whole Bible as, you know, the literal truth. He's very mild, because of course, in what he says, but he points out that any account of how we understand the Bible has to take notice of some facts. One is that there are, you know, clear inconsistencies. One example he gives is there are two genealogies for the birth of Jesus. They just have different, you know, ancestors. and they can't both be right. Or the two different accounts of the death of Judas, in one of which he hangs himself, and in the other his bowels burst, if I remember rightly. And the other thing is that he says I thought was very interesting is that when he reads the Bible and gets inspiration from it, usually the question of, is, is this literally true, is not. It was a primary issue as he's reading it. So that's the first thing. You can read the Bible in some ways for its message rather than you know worrying about whether, for example, the sun really did stand still whilst Joshua fought a famous battle. The other is, do we think the Bible, as it were, has a consistent view of God all the way through, or do you think that it's a long historical document which shows people getting closer and closer to an understanding of God that modern people would find acceptable? So, on my understanding of things that are written in the Bible, God is clearly originally conceived of as a being with a body who you know, lives in a particular place and goes walking in gardens in the cool of the evening and so on. Um, and then later people come and say, no, no, he doesn't dwell in a house built by human hands. He's purely spirit. He doesn't have a body. That's a mistake. And I read the Bible as saying that originally God wants sacrifice and then you get a lot of prophets who come along and say, no, no, I don't want sacrifice, I want mercy and justice. Now, it seems to me you can make very little sense of the Bible if you don't see this later writers, as it were, correcting earlier writers and trying to improve on them. So a different way of reading the Bible is to think that it's a story of people struggling towards a certain conception of God which is then you know fully revealed in the life of Jesus.
0: For me anyway, trying to read the Bible as the coherent, consistent work of one deity is just makes the whole Bible incomprehensible and it makes a lot more sense if you read it as, you know, the writings of many different people who had different theologies and different ideas about morality and different ideas about politics and they just happened to be sold, this entire library of different authors happened to be sold uh, between, you know, just one set of covers.
1: Yeah, I think it's more than just a set of covers, because I think there are reasons why these particular books were chosen. And another thing that you know, we always have to remember is that these books were chosen. There was an enormous debate, as you know, which went on the century, about what's in the Bible. And I think not sure about this, but I'm pretty sure the book of Revelations was only finally and definitively included rather late in the Middle Ages. But there were always books that were thought to be central to an understanding of God's nature, and then there were ones that were thought to be slightly more doubtful and so on. Now, the problem for the literalists seems to me to be this. I have to suppose that not only the people who wrote the Bible, were divinely inspired and somehow God dictated things so they didn't get them wrong. But also the people who chose which books they were going to be in were all divinely inspired. But some of the councils that made these decisions were full of all sorts of people who, if we looked at them rather carefully, weren't the most, you know, reputable or even morally uh upright people. So I prefer a sort of Christian picture in which the Bible can be seen as an evolution of views about God. Unlike C.S. Lewis, I think what's particularly striking is you know, the message of Jesus, which seems to be clear and striking. And in many ways, though it's kind of foreshadowed in some of the prophets, it also represents a considerable move away from all kinds of aspects of the Jewish religion. Or as I prefer to think of it, it's a kind of taking the best parts of the Jewish religion. So, you know, Jesus' disciples do things on the Sabbath that they're not supposed to do. Not just that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. His disciples go to a cornfield and, you know, and rub the ears of corn to eat the kernel, and that's forbidden. Jesus delivers an entirely new message, namely the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So some of the things Jesus says are profoundly in line with Jewish thought at the time like the summing of the commandments of love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and my neighbor as thyself. It's just a bit of standard rabbinical teaching. But then he says other things that are dramatic.
0: Well, I'd like to try to end on actually a polemical note, a very unphilosophical thing, I know. But I think that those who accept the idea that morality was written in stone thousands of years ago in a culture that most modern people would think of as quite barbaric and, you know, accepting slavery and sexism and racism, I think that kind of morality is a lot more dangerous than, for example, a rational, intuistic approach What kinds of things do you say to Christians who accept a a divine command theory of morality, either to try to persuade them to a a different view or at least get them to think about a different view of morality?
1: It's a good question. And I think it would all depend, I mean, what you would say would depend on who you were talking to and what it was that was driving them to this view. I have some real difficulties in some ways understanding... well, firstly, understanding the appeal of literally. Um, I can see why people want certainty, but um, once you've thought through exactly what a literal understanding of a Bible would commit you to, then I find it hard to see why you would think that you had to take this view. So, I think what people worry about is something like this. It's a sort of slippery slope worry, right? So, well, here's a story. um, when I was a student, I had a, a friend who knocked around with some conservative evangelical people, and one of them was a literalist about the Bible, and he said, well, you know, is there anything in the Bible that's metaphorical? <laughs> so this man talked for a very long time, and then he said, well, when it says Lazarus was taken unto the bosom of Abraham, I don't suppose it literally means <laughs> But the fact that he had to struggle so hard, uh why? Well you might think because he thought if we start saying this is metaphorical, where are we going to end up? That's right, you know, because then I start saying, Well, that's the story about Genesis is and Adam and Eve is metaphorical. It's just a story about how he created humans and created males and females and yeah. It isn't supposed to be that it was a particular chap, Adam, and a particular woman, Eve. And you can sort of see people thinking, once you've made this first confession, uh, there's going to be no stopping place until there's nothing left of Christianity. And I think Lewis is very good at I mean, Lewis's view is furious. Christianity is a historical religion in the following sense. If you're a Christian... You believe that, you know, there was a particular man named Christ, that he was the son of God, that he had a particular mission, that he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. And if you don't believe any of that stuff, then it's not clear why you would want to call yourself Christian. But slippery slope arguments are always, you know, they imply there aren't any very sensible stopping place. So, biblical scholarship seems Course he doesn't provide conclusive evidence that Jesus lived and said these things since you know nothing could provide conclusive evidence, but all sorts of people are much better qualified than I am, think that the evidence is rather good and probably you know just as good as evidence for other distant historical events are often shrouded in a certain amount of darkness so just saying, well, look, some parts of the Bible aren't literally true, and some are metaphor and some are symbolic, and some are myths trying to tell us a certain kind of story, doesn't mean we have to think that the whole thing is a myth. So I think that's the first thing I'd say. On the divine command theory, it seems to me that this obsession with there being nothing independent of God's will, as if... God's acknowledgement that certain things were good and certain things were bad was somehow take away from his majesty. I find extraordinary that the reason to worship God is that he's wholly good and created the world and created it well. And those seem excellent reasons for worshipping God. And if the truth of mathematics or the truth of morality don't depend on his will, well, that doesn't seem to be a reason for saying, ah, You know, not worthy of worship because he didn't create the mathematical truth. That would be a really strange view to take.
0: Well, David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much.